Who before what? Who before what? Who you are before what you do. May sound strange, but I think that you understand this better than you might immediately think. Who you are as an employee for that company matters for what you do for them. If you show up for work tomorrow and you do the work of another company, that won't go well for you. If you're a citizen of this country or that country, but you fight for the army of another country, that too won't go well for you. Why? Because fundamentally, you always do what in light of who you are. So it's only as you understand who you are as an image bearer of God that you can rightly live out the what of your life. Who you are is prior to what you do. This is how Jesus prayed for his own disciples before he went to the cross. He wanted them, and by implication, he wants you to understand who you are as a disciple, that you might be faithful in the what of being one. So this morning, we're going to see this from John 17. John chapter 17, verses 6 through 19. This is Jesus' prayer to his Father before his hour of agony on the cross. This is the eternal Son speaking to the eternal Father about their eternal plans for their people. And remarkably, we have the privilege of listening in. Last week, we looked at the first five verses as Jesus prayed for himself, for his own glory, as he would win eternal life for all whom the Father had given him. This week, he prays for his disciples. Look down at verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you've given me. They may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. The scripture 
might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Here's the main point of Jesus' prayer. Jesus prays that you would know who you are as a disciple so that you will persevere in being a disciple. He prays that you would know who you are as a disciple so that you would persevere in being his disciple. I'm going to ask two questions of this text this morning. And the first question is this, why does Jesus pray for his disciples? Why? Why does he pray for his disciples? This is in verse 6 through the first part of verse 11. Why does he pray for his disciples? Well, he's already prayed for himself. And now he's clearly specifically praying for those whom the Father's given him. His disciples. Here it's his original disciples. They were foundational to the church. They are primarily who's in view here. But by implication, this includes all the disciples who will follow after them. If you peek down to verse 20, we're going to look at this next week. Jesus says, my prayer is not for them alone, but for all who believe in me through their word. Just take a moment of license and imagine what it was like to be in the room, to hear the Savior pray. The impact that night, the way they would treasure this after the cross and the resurrection at length with deliberateness, Jesus prays specifically for his own. Why? Well, very first, because they now belong to the Father. They belong to the Father. That's who they are now. Verse 6, I manifested, I revealed your name to the people you gave me out of the world. This whole gospel begins, John 1, with Jesus being disclosed as the word made flesh, who is at the Father's side, who uniquely alone makes the Father known to the world. He discloses the Father. And apart from Jesus, these disciples were part of the world. This created moral order that has organized itself together in rebellion against God. But who they are has changed. Jesus called them out of the world. Because the Father gave them to him. Yours they were. You gave them to me. What was it like for these disciples to slowly realize the cosmic implications 
of who it was that Jesus had changed them to be. They were so ordinary, common sinners. But now by the person of Jesus, who they are has changed. They belong to the Father. They belong to the Son, not because they begged or bribed, but because of the love of the Father gives them to the Son. And that's true for every disciple. You belong to the Father as a gift to the Son. You ever felt overwhelmed by life? Maybe you feel overwhelmed here at this very moment. Circumstances seem so big or out of control. Maybe it's pressures or, or maybe you know as you sit there this morning, temptation that is so strong. As a Christian, if you're trusting Jesus Christ, you can always go back to first and fundamental truths. And that is, I belong to the Father. This is my Father's world. He owns me. He's given me as a gift to his son. Yours they were. You gave them to me. Jesus means for his own to know who it is to whom they belong. It's remarkable as he's going to the cross, who's on his mind? His own. In all of their obvious weakness, they are not a nuisance to Jesus. He sees them as a gift. I mean, do you see how much Jesus emphasized that in this prayer? Verse six, whom you gave me out of the world, you gave them to me. Verse nine, Jesus is not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me. We're not orphans. No claim on the Father. The Son sees us as his gift, who through his work now are called sons of God. You and I have no right, nor would we ever presume to just show up and ask His Highness Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed al-Nayyan for something but we can do this with our father who is the king of heaven and earth. Beggar can't do that, but a son can. Jesus prays for them because they are now the father's own and they will represent the father and the son to the world. Who they are has been forever and fundamentally changed by Jesus. If you would live for the father and labor for his glory in this world, you must know deeply who it is you are. You belong to the Father. And our world's fallenness is seen in the fact that Christians are so opposed, so insignificant. And yet look at the worth that we have before the Father. Despised, rejected on earth, loved and treasured by the Father in heaven. Jesus means for his disciples because they will have a a universe of ending mission before them that seems far too great for them to understand their status in heaven. Now, you sit in the reality of this. It will propel you to faithfulness, to contentment, to obedience. It will give you power to say no to temptation and to obey your lovingly, loving heavenly father. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ, do you say with confidence or do you say with embarrassment or timidity? I belong to the Father. That reality must be driven down into you. And as it is, this world will be 
less and less alluring to you. Can anyone in the world say this? How does Jesus distinguish who belongs to the Father? Look at the end of verse 6. They have kept your word. They know everything you've given me is from you, for I gave them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and come to know in truth that I came from you and believe that you sent me. So what marks those who belong to the Father out of this world is that they keep the Father's word. So by Jesus' word and by his works, he has disclosed who the Father is to the world. This is what Jesus has already taught his disciples. If you go all the way back to John 3, verses 33 and 34, Jesus speaks of himself in this way. Whoever receives his, speaking of himself, testimony, sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. As they sat there, as Jesus was praying this prayer, there was so much the disciples did not understand. They did not yet understand why or that he must die and rise again. But they had received his words. They believed he was the truth sent from God. They are following him so imperfectly, but faithfully. The crowds have left but they've stayed. Who do you belong to? It's not a question that most people ask themselves, but do you see Jesus clearly thinks that you either belong to this world or you belong to the Father? Now, if you know yourself, you know that you've not kept God's word. You've ignored it. You've suppressed it. You've rejected it. You may hate it. Disobeyed it. Since the fall of humanity into sin, we have lived for, we've loved the word and the words of this world. We've not glorified the God who's created us. We've not seen him as good. We've turned in on ourselves. And what did Jesus, God's own son, come into the world to do? He came to live and to die for those who have posed God. Now that takes a lot of different forms in the world. But fundamentally, we all naturally in our pride believe we're good enough. We can do something to make ourselves right with God. And so we failed to live under God's word. But Jesus comes and he's different from us in this way. He lived under, he obeyed the whole word of God all the way until he died and was raised for sinners who have not done so. So by his cross and his resurrection, Jesus won salvation for the world, for a world that cannot achieve it. This morning, hear the good news of the gospel. You don't have to strive or live according to this world's terms. You can come out of this world, repent of your love for this world, and believe in Jesus Christ, and he will receive you. Take him at his word and believe in him. To my brothers and sisters, let this be a reminder that what you're doing with God's word matters. It's what marks off who does and who does not belong to the Father. You know, whatever confusion there is in this world about all of this, there's really no confusion about it in the demonic realm. 
I mean, how did the serpent first attack our first parents? He attacked the father's word in the father's good world. He undermined it. He denied its truthfulness. He denied its goodness because he fundamentally denies the God who is good, who gave it. As you sit there this morning, do not underestimate all in this world that opposes your knowledge of and your trust in God's word in his world. Do not take this for granted. The undeserved grace that God has given you, if you look at his word and you believe in the Savior who is revealed there, if you're living by his word, it's all grace from the Father. The Father's word given, the Father's word passed down is the greatest of treasures in the universe. Think about your last week. What words filled your mind? We're all filling our lives with words. If you didn't spend 30 hours in the gospel of Mark or the book of Genesis, what words this last week did you fill your own mind with? What intentional steps in the next week will you take to fill your life with the very words of God? Anytime you hear or you read God's word, it's never neutral. It's a stewardship. I think the more that you understand that we live in a world in which God had to speak for us to understand ultimate reality, the more you will see the worth of God's word. You realize after Adam and Eve rebelled against God, God did not owe humanity one more word. And yet he spoke gracious word after gracious word after gracious word. That's what we're here for together is to help each other know this word and keep the father's word. It may not be a shock to you, but we will never be cooler than this world ever. But what we do have to offer to the world is life in this world under a different word. Paradox is that as we bind our life and our worship to the word of God, we live in freedom. Jesus lived by the word until his death. He freely went to the cross to die to free sinners enslaved to a lesser word. And so when we fail to keep this word, we run to Jesus. We look to him. Keeping the father's word is what marks off the Christian in this world. Friends, Jesus did not pray for everyone in general, but no one in particular. He says directly to his father, verse nine, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. If you're trusting Jesus Christ, just as his original disciples, you belong to the father. Why else does Jesus pray? Secondly, secondly, because he's glorified in his disciples. He's glorified in his disciples. Verse 10, the disciples are those through whom Jesus is brought glory. Now think of that. These disciples have so miserably misunderstood Jesus again and again. They are about to fail him in the hour when he needs them most. One of them, when given the opportunity to just say publicly that he knows him, will deny him. And yet Jesus, the son of God in the flesh, has left the glories of heaven and he's staking his glory on his disciples. 
He doesn't say he will be glorified in them. He, he certainly will be, but that he is. Is he naive? No. So many in the world had walked the other way. But here's these men and perfectly but faithfully following him. When they could have sided with the world, they sided with Jesus. And so they bring him glory. It's remarkable that the weakness of the disciples does not weaken the love of Jesus for his disciples. He will receive glory from them. And so he prays for them. He prays for grace to empower them, to glorify him when he leaves the world. It will be by their bold witness, witness that they can't even fathom they will be asked to carry out, that they will testify to the world about Jesus. These disciples will upend the world by making much of Jesus with their lives. I think when you read the New Testament letters that one of the, the greatest encouragements is something that's so easy to overlook. They were written to small, in many ways overlooked, bands of believers in the great ancient cities of the Roman Empire. These little churches filled with Jesus' disciples had taken on cosmic significance more than any of the glories of the cities like Ephesus or Corinth or Jerusalem or, or Rome, those cities were populated with hundreds of thousands of people. These churches, in many ways, wouldn't have even been noticeable. And yet when Paul writes to Timothy about the church in Ephesus, he says that the church is the household of God, not the temple of Artemis, was so striking, but the little church was where the presence of the living God dwelled. Where the world looks for glory is not where Jesus looks for glory. Jesus is glorified in his small band of disciples. You know, the same is true today. You can't begin to fathom the glory that your faithfulness brings to Jesus. That if we're to believe his word, that our faithfulness together brings to Jesus. Not impressive. We look relatively small and weak, and yet Jesus has chosen to receive glory through his people. Remarkably, we are what he has. And far from disappointing him all the time, he's prayed for us. He's purposed to bring glory to himself through his disciples. So let Jesus change the way you see his church and his people. Let Jesus change the way that you're valuing what is of greatest worth in the United Arab Emirates. Let Jesus change the way you're thinking about your life and whatever time the Lord gives you here. He prayed for his disciples because they will bring him glory. And finally, very simply, Jesus prays for his disciples because he's leaving them. Verse 11, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I am coming to you. We uniquely feel this time of year the difficulty, the sadness of people who have left. There's faces right now that I miss seeing as I look at this church. Can you imagine for the disciples what it was like to, to lose the physical presence and person of Jesus, their friend? And yet his leaving does not mean they're left alone. He will send the Spirit 
to bring the presence of the risen Christ to them. He must die. He must leave, but he leaves nothing unaccounted for. His concern as he goes to the cross is for those who belong to the Father and will bring him glory. We take comfort that Jesus has prayed for us better than we know to pray for ourselves. That he asked of the Father in ways that are wiser than we know to ask for ourselves. He prays with the wisdom of eternity and his plans, not ours. As you sit here, trust that what doesn't make sense to you now will in eternity. You will see he really did know best how to use your life and your gifts for infinitely wise purposes. All mine are yours. Yours are mine. Jesus meant for his disciples to understand why he prays. It's because of who they are. And he also means for us to understand what he prayed. That's our second question. What does Jesus pray for his disciples? Why and what does Jesus pray for his disciples? The second part of verse 11 through verse 19. And it's here that he begins to ask on behalf of his disciples. Verse 11b, Holy Father. He's the God before whom the angels veil their faces. He's transcendent. He's above all. And at the same time, he is eternally father to the son. Now, given our context, I do think one question or objection we should consider is why would God the son, the flesh, pray? Doesn't this undermine his claim about himself? My answer to why he would pray as God the son in the flesh is because he is God the son because he's been in communion and fellowship with the Father from all eternity. As son in human flesh, he is dependent on the Father to fulfill the plan that they have purposed together and planned from before all eternity. The the, the praying and the communion that the Son knew with the Father on earth is a continuation of the communion and fellowship he had known with the Father from all eternity. They are always in fellowship with one another. So he's interceding with the Father on earth. And what will he do when he gets in heaven? He will intercede with the Father on heaven, in heaven. So what does he pray? He prays first, verse 11, for the Father to keep his disciples. Keep them. They belong to you, Father. Keep them in your name, the name which the Father has given Jesus So what's he praying? He is praying for his disciples' preservation and perseverance in the faith and faithfulness. He's praying, Father, keep them from denying your name, my name, by their life and by their witness. So what he had done on earth, he's praying for to the Father in heaven. Verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name which you've given me. I've guarded them, not one lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. There's two realities to remember here. Apart from the father keeping you, guarding you, you will be lost. You will not be kept. And this keeping means the Christian life is a fight. The stakes are high. Eternal glory is at stake in your life. 
J.C. Ryle writes this, true Christianity is a fight. True Christianity, mind that word true. Let there be no mistake about my meaning. There is a vast quantity of religion current in the world, which is not true, genuine Christianity. Such Christianity may may satisfy man and those who say anything against it may be thought very hard and uncharitable. But it is certainly not the Christianity of the Bible. Warfare with the powers of hell is the experience of every individual member of the true church. Each has to fight. What are the lives of all the saints but records of battles? So to keep the Father's name, battles will have to be fought. You will have to fight against the pull and the power of the world. You will have to fight against temptations to sin in your own flesh. You will have to fight against the powers of hell to follow Jesus. The world, the flesh, and the devil. That's the fight of every Christian. And Jesus is praying in light of that, that we would be kept faithful to the Father's name. And of course, he speaks of Judas, the son of destruction, pulled by the world. He left his master, but he didn't thwart his plans. He fulfilled the scriptures. What does Jesus mean? It's a pattern set in the Psalms. In the Old Testament, Psalm 41, King David writes of his close friend, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up. For me, the longer I go in the the Christian life and in Christian ministry, the more I treasure persevering in faithfulness. How often someone can start out with zeal or excitement, even in ministry, then just kind of fades away. As you look around the room of this church or so many faithful churches in the world, you should be astonished seeing people God has kept faithful to his name. I was encouraged even as we were singing this morning, looking at some of you. It's evidence of God's power in your life. Too often Christians are just astonished, and we should be, when someone falls into great sin, but we're never astonished of the miracle of God keeping someone faithful over a lifetime in obedience to him. Now, the fact that you're fighting, the fact that you're sitting in that chair this week, if you're trusting Jesus, no matter how much you were knocked down this week, is evidence of the power of God keeping you. It's true of Jesus' disciples. They would face opposition. They would fall. You know some of them fell in public ways. But the Father kept them. The Father preserved them. He persevered them using all kinds of means. You should take time to consider all the specific providences of God in your life, very specific ways that from the morning, the day, the time you first believed to this very day, the ways God has kept you. As you look back, I imagine if you're like me, you're going to see sin. You're going to see ways that you strayed, but you must see specific ways the Father has kept you. That Christian comes to your mind. The ways that you know, looking back, he did better for you than you could have ever done for yourself. Think about all the ways that he's kept you that you're not even aware of. And you won't be. He holds you fast. Consider how he might use you to keep others. Who 
here, could you help follow Jesus? How could you do that in the next few months? When you invest in someone's life in this way and discipleship, you're investing in some people somewhere in the future you will never meet. Jesus was investing in the future of his church by praying for his disciples in this way. Notice what is part of this keeping, verse 11, that they may be one even as we are one. So the Father and the Son are one, unified in relationship and in their purpose and mission. They never work separate. It's inseparable work that they do. And so in praying for this, he's praying for the disciples' oneness and purpose and mission. To bring glory to Christ, disciples must labor in unity. How will they be kept faithful to the Father's name? It is testifying to who God is and his gospel in a united way. This is part of our faithfulness in being kept. Faithfulness to the gospel in the gospel. The gospel purges our unity and it's the, by in, in the gospel through our unity that we protect the gospel. Jesus prayed that his fathers uh, his father would keep his disciples and he prayed that they would be kept from the evil one. So it's here that Jesus begins to hone in on this distinction between the world and his disciples. Look at verse 14. He says that he's given the disciples his father's word that the world hated it, the disciples because they're not of the world. Just as the disciples are marked by keeping the father's word, the world is marked by its opposition to the father's word but not Jesus' disciples, verse 16, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Now, what does that mean? It means that Jesus' disciples have different goals than this world. It means they see this world differently than this world sees itself. Ultimately, because Jesus' disciples have a different God than this world. And even though Jesus is leaving the world, he's not praying that the Father, verse 15, take the disciples out of the world, but that the Father keep them from the evil one. The one who has authority over this present world, has authority over all of those who love this world and its rebellious system, over all of those who are enslaved in this present age. Be kept to the Father is be kept from the evil one. He has authority, but not ultimate authority. Jesus is praying to the Father because he is sovereign over our time. When we leave this world, every disciple is left in this world for our eternal good and clearly for the world's eternal good until the Father's appointed time when it is finished. And notice Jesus is not interested in some separatist kind of religion when Christians retreat into a bubble and do not engage in the world. We're to be in the world. We're to be distinct from the world. Not by keeping the world at an arm's length. As if all the evil is out there and not in here. It's by living lives faithful to the Father. I hope you're seeing that Jesus excluding the world from this prayer is not callousness. By him praying to the Father in this way. He is praying most wisely for the good of the world. He has God has so loved this rebellious world that he sent his own son into it to die for it. So by the disciples being faithful to the father, they bear 
witness to the world so that many in the world are called out of the world. Now, hopefully, if you're a Christian, you long for heaven. But God has seen fit to place you here in the United Arab Emirates or whatever it is that he has you to be faithful, to testify to Jesus, to influence this world for good. In our Father's world, there are no accidental places where the Father's disciples end up. There's no mistakes. Nothing has happened that caught him off guard. You've been deployed here or there for eternally wise purposes. Students on campus this year, you've been deployed there for the glory of Jesus Christ. Students and teachers in your school, in your classroom, those of you in the home or in the workplace, those of you that have different friends and and relationships, all of this not on accident, but for the glory of Jesus, steward it. Trust that you are where you are because of Jesus's prayer to keep you and to be glorified in and through your life. I think when it comes to satanic work or even that word or demonic activity, we can immediately go to just really big things that are just obviously wicked. You know, someone lighting a fire in the desert to Satan. It's so often far more subtle than that. It so often begins with laziness, with your prayer life, spiritual disciplines, a look that you know you should not be looking at. Begins with pride where you start to think you're above certain practices or means of grace that God has so graciously given you. Just slowly, your love for Jesus Christ is replaced with affections for something else. Where do you see that in your life this morning? Don't don't minimize that. Turn from it. See that that is the Father's way of keeping you as you repent. And yet, even as he's praying that they be kept from the evil one, he positively prays, verse 13, that they as disciples have his joy in themselves. So to be kept from includes greater joy and satisfaction in Christ. Very simply, resist Satan by pursuing joy in Jesus Christ. Go after it. It's by keeping his word that you're kept from the evil one. It's Through that, that the joy that the Father and the Son have exploded with from all eternity becomes yours. Jesus prays for his disciples to be kept. And finally, he prays for his disciples' sanctification. Their sanctification, verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So he's marked his disciples off by evidence the fact that they've kept the Father's word, and now notice he prays that they would be sanctified in it. We don't separate God the Father from God the Father's word. Now think about how high a priority and how great the need for sanctification is if Jesus chose to pray for it in this moment. He knew their weakness. He knows yours. And the Savior is not repulsed by it. He prays in light of it. How does sanctification come about? By abiding and keeping the Father's word. So justification is God's 
free declaration of righteous upon guilty sinners who by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, come to faith in Jesus. Sanctification is also the work of God in which the sinner progresses, now the saint progresses in holiness. You become who you are. Your sanctification, just like your justification, is a work of God. Now, one way to think of sanctification is imagining a prisoner who is being freed from prison. Let's say after like 40 years, decades, maybe their entire adult life in prison. For decades, they have lived, they have breathed what it is to be a prisoner. They've known rhythms, habits of thinking, and it has dominated their life. But on the day that they're free, that they walk out, they're just that. They're free. And yet they only know the prison mindset. Former prisoner must now learn to live as a free man. They're not anymore what they once were. And this understanding and change takes time. This is what sanctification is. It's becoming who you are in Jesus Christ. You've been set free from sin in order to obey Jesus. And yet how easily the Christian who is suddenly new creation slips back into the old creation ways of living and thinking. How easily we look back to the prison from which we've been set free. And sanctification is becoming more like Jesus. And so our sanctification works toward our freedom, not our enslavement. This is the freedom for which Jesus has come to set you free. This is what he's sending his disciples into the world to proclaim. Just as Jesus was sent by the Father, he sends his disciples out praying for their conforming to Christ, which will empower their proclamation of Christ. Our Savior prays for his disciples' sanctification, and he doesn't stop there. He dies for it. Verse 19, he consecrates himself that his disciples might be sanctified in truth. It's sacrificial language. Rather than consecrating an animal to be sacrificed, he consecrates himself. He's unique. He's both priest and sacrificial lamb. The Holy One will die for unholy people to make them holy. Your sanctification was won and paid for with his blood. Who you are before what you do. To fulfill their mission, Jesus' disciples must understand to whom they belong before they do what it is Jesus calls them to. Jesus is leaving the world, but he's not leaving without covering his disciples in effective prayer. And you are meant to hear this prayer. You are meant to be astonished by all that God has done and is doing to answer it. And you and I are meant to press on in keeping faithful to our Father's name by knowing the joy of the Savior and giving glory to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who prayed it.